Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8. And uh, if you're not used to the Bible, the Bible is inspired completely, and so is the index. So you can just look on the index, and you will see Daniel, and it'll tell you what page to go to. But uh, Daniel chapter 8. Now, I'm always aware uh, that uh, there are people that haven't been here week after week as we're going through a book of the Bible. And in Daniel's case, we're going through it a whole chapter at a time. And each chapter builds on the other chapter. And if I were to take the time to totally review everything, uh, then uh, a good, most of you would be kind of lost. Well, I've already heard all that. Uh, but there are some things that are worth reviewing. And if you're going to be here regularly, then read through the whole book of Daniel. There's no other book in the Bible that makes it so clear that the Bible is God's Word the way Daniel does. And we'll even talk about that a little bit tonight. But especially next week when we do the 70th week of Daniel's sermon, uh, and you'll, that's an amazing passage of Scripture. And then in chapter 11 is one of the most detailed pictures of history ever written hundreds of years before any of it ever happened. And it's quite amazing uh, just to uh, see that. So uh, I've called the sermon today the Silver and Bronze Kingdom. So just for this kind of review, quick review. In chapter 2, we had a statue that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about and asked Daniel, who in chapter 1 was captured by the Babylonians. He was Jewish, and many Jews, they wrecked the temple. They brought the Jews into Babylon and changed their names to Babylonian names. And Daniel was one of those teenagers. And, and now for tonight's sermon, he's about 70 years old, uh, but he lives into his 90s. And what he does in his life is just hard to even believe. It's so amazing what he did. But he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue. And the statue is made up of different metals. It's a statue of a person. And the top person, the head of the statue, is what metal is it? Gold. So a head of gold. And one time Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head. Because the statue is a picture of all of world history. And then under the, that, there's uh, another part, the, the two arms and the breast part is made of what metal? Silver. Silver, worth a little bit less. And the two arms, that's Medo-Persia, uh, the Medo and Persia Empire. It came after the Babylonian Empire. We'll see that a little bit tonight. And then after that, uh, around the sort of the, the uh, abdomen area is another metal worth even less. And what's it? Bronze. And that's... Uh, that's Alexander the Great, one of the most amazing young conquerors in all of world history. And uh, that's the Greek Empire, and that gets divided up into all kinds of other things that we'll see tonight. And then after that, there's the legs of iron, which represents uh, the, what is it? Rome, represents Rome. And then the feet are made of a combination of iron and clay, and there's 10 toes, and we'll see in biblical history, we'll see the history that's still to come, there will be sort of a, a new Roman empire. It won't be called Rome, but it will have 10 different parts to it and all that. And then it all ends because what was taken out of the side of a mountain? A stone. 
by hands that weren't human hands. And where was the stone thrown? On the feet of the on the feet of the, the whole thing, and it all came crashing down, the stone represents the kingdom of God and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the, the statue is a picture of world history from the Babylonian Empire right through uh, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then it starts to develop, and in, uh, in chapter uh, 2, then we go to chapter 3 and 4. Uh, in chapter uh, 5, you have the writing on the wall. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Uh, chapter 6 and 7. We did chapter 7 last time. You have another picture of parts of that statue. And tonight, we're going to look at two parts of it, the silver part of the statue and the bronze kingdom, silver and bronze kingdom. So that we have a prophecy tonight that connects to the statue of chapter 2 and the vision of chapter 7, which we did last week, uh, but emphasizes a period of time 400 years after Daniel when a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes persecutes the people of God, the Jewish people, in a very cruel way. He was a madman indeed. And Daniel is talking about him even though he's hundreds of years before he appears on history. Commentators of Daniel uh, mostly are in agreement with the interpretation of, of Daniel chapter 8. But some say, some commentators say, that it had to have been written after the fact because it's far too accurate to have been written before the fact. Uh, and no one could have known the future in such detail, much less uh, a man by the name of Daniel. Well, I would say that they're correct. That's right. No one can know the future but God and whoever he chooses to reveal it to. In this case, he revealed it to Daniel. God gives Daniel this prophecy to encourage those in the coming hard times that he's going to tell them about that God is still in charge. So look at Daniel 8, verse 1. It reads this way. In the third year of Belshazzar's reign, we've already talked about Belshazzar, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, that was chapter 7, and in my vision, verse 2, I saw myself in the sittle of Susa. Now, uh, when he says he, saw, he wasn't in Susa, he wasn't there, but that's what he saw himself as if he was in Susa. So I saw myself in the city citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. All of those places were well known in Daniel's day. So Daniel is now 70 years old, uh, two years after chapter 7's dream that we looked at last time, and the political situation is shaky, to say the least. Cyrus, the king, is on the scene, and the news media is reporting the possibility of invasion, and maybe, hard to believe, but maybe even the end of the Babylonian Empire. God gave Daniel this vision to encourage him that his people would survive not only the fall of Babylon, but even beyond the death of Cyrus the king. Now remember, this happened before chapter 5, and Belshazzar, you might remember, in chapter 5, uh, the graffiti on the wall. He's the one that saw the handwriting on the wall, uh, that incident. And so in chapter 7, the visions came at night while Daniel was sleeping. This time, Daniel is not sleeping while having an awake vision from God. 
He was in Babylon and only saw Susa 200 miles away in the vision. Now, we have two books of the Bible, Esther and Nehemiah. Both Esther and Nehemiah lived in Susa. Darius built a beautiful palace in Susa. And in 1901, the code of Hammurabi was discovered in Susa by archaeologists. So we know a lot about the area. Some have said Daniel was buried in Susa after he died, but there's no evidence of this. And Elam... Uh, is now the area we call Iran, and Ulai Canal, it still exists today. <clears throat> it's 900 feet wide, but it is dry today. So now Daniel says in verse 3, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and now something's happening here. And the horns were long, and so here's what he saw. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, toward the Mediterranean Sea, and the north and the south. No animal could stand against the ram, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. That's a, a phrase that we'll see a couple of times. So the ram came, became great. Now, in verse 20 of the same chapter that we're studying, the angel Gabriel tells us who the ram represents. So I'm quoting verse 20. It's on the screen. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's the silver kingdom. The ram was an appropriate animal to represent this nation as the Persian ruler carried the gold head of a ram when he marched before his army. Uh, the ram or the goat became their symbol. You've heard of the Aegean Sea. It means the goat sea. That's the area in the world today. The arrangement of the horns depict accurate history. Before Cyrus came to power, Media was stronger than Persia. But eventually, the other horn, Persia, grew to be stronger than Media. And as we've already read, no animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Now, no animal means no nation could defeat Media Persia, and it became larger than any nation up to that time. So now look at verse 5 in your Bibles. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So this is a pretty fast goat. It looks like a, a fighter jet going across. That's sort of the imagery you get here. And verse 6, it came, the goat, toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram with the two horns, Medo-Persia, was powerless to stand against it the goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Now, here we have this phrase again, verse 8. The goat became very great. But 
At the height of the goat's power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, this should remind us of Daniel's dream that we studied last time, where a similar picture was in the form of a leopard rather than a goat. And you notice that the goat's horn was broken off, but not by an enemy. This is very significant. It seems the goat somehow broke off its own horn. It was not broken off by another, at least not an external other. Actually, this is a picture of how personal pride, because you realize the goat represents a person, this is a, a picture of how personal pride destroys anyone who does not learn humility and practice self-control. Alexander the Great, this young man, never learned to control his temper and could not stay away from wine and what the Bible calls strong drink. In fact, history tells us a lot about him. He really defeated himself. You see, there's no true success in life for anyone who is not disciplined. That's obviously true, I think, but does not live a godly life. Daniel was processing this vision in his mind. He's wondering what it was all about. And then this goat appears swiftly, suddenly. Now, we know from chapter 8 and verse 21, I'm quoting again, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The name, Alexander the Great. Alexander was one of the great military strategists of history. He was born in 356 B.C., the son of a great conqueror by the name of Philip of Macedon, who had united Greece of Macedonia and was planning to attack Persia when he was murdered. Alexander, this young man, 20 years old, educated under Aristotle uh, and in 336, succeeded his father as king. And a year and a half later, he launched his attack against a much stronger or at least much larger Persian empire. In that same year, Alexander won the battle of a place called Granicus. This is well known in history, in Asia Minor, bringing to an end the dominance of what was the largest empire ever, the Medo-Persian Empire. And with his subsequent victories at a place called Isis and Arbella, the conquest of Medo-Persia was complete, incredibly. Within only three years, Alexander had conquered what was considered at that time uh, the whole world in three years. In actual, actually, we know it was the entire Near East. But then pride set in. A Greek warrior named Achilles, you know about the Achilles tendon, you heard that, you're in trouble, was Alexander's hero. And he believed that Achilles and the god Hercules, small g god Hercules, were his ancestors. So Alexander decided that everyone should worship him as a god. The Greek troops resented this order. 
Nevertheless, Alexander's empire spread for 1.5 million square miles. And Alexander died June 13th, 323 BC. He was only 32 years old. And uh, <clears throat> when you read the biographies, uh, everybody is guessing what he really died of. Some say it was malaria, uh, very unlikely. But others say that he was actually assassinated by poison. And uh, the most common one is he was a hopeless alcoholic. And uh, he just probably killed himself, not on purpose, uh, because of his alcoholism and the way he did everything. He was a mess at 32 years old. Conquered the world, but he couldn't conquer himself. Now, this is interesting, though. He was used of God in an amazing way. He had spread the Greek language and culture all over the world. And this prepared the way for the gospel, the good news about Jesus, by giving it a common speech, Koinea Greek, the language of the New Testament. And you've heard me say in sermons many times that the Bible of the early church was a Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Everybody understood Greek at this time. And when Jesus came, everyone understood Greek, even though Jesus spoke Aramaic and he would have spoken Hebrew, but Greek was the language of the day. There's nobody who didn't know Greek. And that's because of Alexander the Great, this young, irresponsible young man uh, who had tremendous uh, abilities but ruined his own life with pride and, in his case, alcoholism. Now, Alexander, he's the large horn, left two sons, Alexander IV and Heracles, who was thought to be an illegitimate child, and both were murdered. The resulting infighting produced four Greek military leaders, just like the four prominent horns that Daniel saw. Think about this. Daniel's, Daniel is writing this all down hundreds of years before any of this happened. So the initial division of the empire was divided into four areas, just as Daniel's vision pictured. Now look at verse 9 in your Bible. Out of one of them out of one of the four horns, uh, came the Greek empire, came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. That's just a fancy way of saying toward Jerusalem, toward Israel. The New Living Translation even translates it the glorious land of Israel. And uh, this small horn grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Uh, in the Bible, the host of heavens can mean angels, but it can also mean God's people. In this incident, it meant God's people. We see that in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, which we'll talk about in a moment. So it grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. So it's a picture of them being defeated. And it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Some of your Bibles will say the prince. And it took away the daily sacrifice, which was important for the Jewish people, from the Lord, and the place of a sanctuary, that's the temple, was thrown down. Now, verse 12 is a surprise here all of a sudden. 
Verse 12 starts off this way, because of rebellion, who rebelled? The Lord's people. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people, the Jews, and the daily sacrifice that they did every day, that was their religious practice, were given over to it, to the, to the commander who was coming on them, uh, and it prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. That's quite a statement. Truth was thrown to the ground. What it means is they forgot God. That's really what's happening today in our country and around the world. Truth has been thrown down. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. There's no absolute truth. Antiochus, here's the man who was responsible for all this, set himself up to be God in place of the prince of princes. That's what some of your Bibles actually say. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, and Epiphanes means the manifest God. That's the meaning of his name. And he put that phrase in all the coins of the day. And in the book of 1 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha is a group of about 11 or so other Bible books that aren't in most of our Bibles. They were in the original King James Bible. They were in that one. And some will point out that the Catholic Church's Bible has the Apocrypha. But the 1st and 2nd Maccabees is our historical chapters. And they're actually, 1st Maccabees especially, is very accurate historically. And in 1st Maccabees, it's written, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. And anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who had heard to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. And so the true religion of Yahweh was being uh, wiped out. And now look at verse 13. Then, Daniel says, remember Daniel, he's having this vision, I heard a holy one, an angel, speaking, and another one, another angel, said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconstructed. Now, it's, it's, it's hard. You can really lose your place here if you don't pay a lot of attention and, and really think this through a little bit. I think it'll come together as we finish off near the end. But we saw a similar horn, if you were here, in chapter 7. A similar horn, like this particular horn. But it came out of the fourth beast and should be identified with the end time still to come. So in chapter 7, the horn that sounds just like this horn, and you'll under, you will understand that in a few minutes, uh, is a horn that's going to come, not, it hasn't come yet, but is going to come. And uh, uh, it's the horn that we call the Antichrist. But 
it is agreed by expositors that this horn, the one we're looking at here in verse 8, represents the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Greek Empire, and his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we'll learn much about him in chapter 11. He's well known historically. He lived in 175 to 163 BC. Uh, Antiochus gained power through bribery and flattery. He was a very smooth politician and an incredibly cruel man. He was especially known for his exploits against God's people in the beautiful land, that's Israel, and the beautiful land of verse 9 is mentioned in chapter 11, where we'll spend a lot of time and probably do more than one sermon on the chapter. And in the book of Jeremiah, we also see the beautiful land. It's not beautiful because of the scenery, but its beauty and honor come because Yahweh chose it as the center of his operation on the earth because his people live there. These are God's people. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, I've said many times uh, in preaching through the Old Testament, there are several chapters all through the Bible that you should know absolutely by heart. I don't mean you memorized every word of them, but you know everything that's in them because they're that important. And in Genesis 12, we have the calling of Abram. His name means father. And he was renamed, he, by God, he became Abraham, the father of many. And there's a promise in Genesis 12, still in place today, that if any nation will honor Israel, God will honor that nation. So should our country turn against Israel, we should be looking up, listening for the angel to shout and the trumpet to sound because Jesus is coming soon. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, it reads this way. I thought to myself, this is God speaking to his people through Jeremiah. I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I look forward to you calling me father, and I wanted you never to turn from me. Remember I said God's people had rebelled? Jeremiah had already spoken about this. You know, we as Christians tend to know, if I were just to say to you, even in a, in a non-liturgical church like ours, uh, let's just say the Our Father together. Almost everybody here could do it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and all of that kind of thing. God wants to be known as our Father. It's one of the most wonderful things if you can really grasp it. If you have a bad father, you were brought up by a father that was not a good father, then everything that's bad about him, God is good a hundred times more on, that, on the other side. God is, a, is the, the good, good father as we sing in the song. And that's, he wants to be our father. He wants to take care of us. All he requires is that since he is the good, good father, since he is God Almighty, is that we obey him. Uh, there's a wonderful verse of scripture, and it reminds me of Jesus overlooking the temple areas and crying out. When, he's, when Jesus is on the earth, he's overlooking the temple area, 
and he's looking at, the, at Jerusalem. He's looking, wait till some of you are going there next year. Wait till you, get, wait till you see this scene. It's in live. It's incredible to see it because you can stand on a hill and overlook where the temple is or was and all of the wall and everything of, uh, of Jerusalem. And Jesus is, had tears in his eyes, his arms raised, no doubt. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I wanted to grab you uh, like a hen grabs her chick under her wings and just, just comfort you and, and love you, but you would not come. This is one of the saddest statements Jesus ever made toward specifically the Jewish people. You would not come. You would not believe that I'm the Messiah, even though all the evidence proved it beyond any doubt. And they would not because they didn't want to, not because they could not. They could have, but they wouldn't. And so we need to be a people that come to God, that come to our Father, that obey our Father, that love Him. And we know, as we'll see in a moment here as we go through this, we know that He's taking care of us. And Israel today is far from obeying God. If you go to Israel, you'll discover that. But we will learn from Daniel and through the book of Romans that a day is coming when national Israel will become the nation of people who tell the world who the one true God and who the Messiah is. That's still to come in the future. And we'll study that actually next week. Now look at verse 10 in your Bibles. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Now let's just change the it. The it is this horn, Antiochus. Antiochus represents his people. So uh, Antiochus, his people, his horn, grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Uh, host means army or God's people. Until it, and it threw some of that starry host down to the earth and trampled on them, trampled on them. In other words, he treated them pretty severely. Now, this is a symbolic picture of our little horn becoming so arrogant that he's willing to not only fight against God's people, but even God himself. This is a picture that Daniel is giving us of the persecution of God's people that began in 170 B.C., 170 years before Christ, when the high priest Onias III was assassinated. And from 170 to 163, thousands of Jews were executed. Remember, this is long, hundreds of years before after Daniel died, uh, from 170 to 163, thousands of Jews were executed because of their unwillingness to give in to the regulations put in place by Antiochus. And in 169, there was a slaughter of 80,000 men, women, boys, girls, infants by Antiochus' soldiers while attacking Jerusalem and taking all the treasures and furniture uh, from the temple. And then in December 167, Antiochus erected an altar to Zeus in the temple precincts and offered swine on it. And this became known as, those of you who are into Bible prophecy, you already know uh, this phrase, this was known as the abomination that causes desolation. Now, let's go forward now, or backward for us, to when Jesus was on this earth. Jesus used this historical incident to point us ahead 
us today ahead to another future time when this will happen again. And so it's a Matthew chapter 24. That's a, a prophecy chapter in the New Testament about the second coming. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, these are the words of Jesus to us. When you see standing in the holy place, that means in the temple, so there has to be a temple, the abomination that causes desolation. Remember, Jesus is saying this. Spoken of to the prophet Daniel. And then he says, let the reader understand. Oh, I hope that this is clear. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to realize, you know what Dan, you know, you've read the book of Daniel, right? So you know about the, the abomination that causes desolation that happened back in those days. Well, it's going to happen again. And when it happens again, well, you better be ready because the whole thing's going to end pretty soon. Now, Jesus is referring to chapter 7. We already studied that last time and what is still to come, but he uses what we just read in chapter 8 as an example, something that was ingrained in the memory of those listening to Jesus when he was on this earth. So look at verse 11 now in your Bibles. Again, it, or the horn, or Antiochus, set himself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord, and he took away the daily sacrifice, refused to let them carry on their religion, from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. So the question is, who is the commander or the prince of the Lord? Both those words are okay to translate either commander or prince. Some have suggested this is the high priest Donias, the third who was assassinated. No, I don't think so. Verse 25 calls the commander the prince of princes. You'll see that in verse 25. And this is a title that refers to God. And it is certain this is no mere man. But Antiochus insisted on attacking all things regarding Yahweh and threatened the Jews so they would worship other gods. And he was greatly successful. Antiochus required the people's allegiance to himself and the Greek gods rather than Yahweh. They were not allowed any of their forms of worship, their specific diets, their circumcision, the, the Sabbath feasts that they kept. So the, uh, the morning and evening sacrifices that they made stopped, and the temple was, to use the terms here, thrown down. It means it was desecrated the abomination that causes desolation. Now, there are two books in the Apocrypha that I've mentioned called 1 Maccabees and 2 Maccabees, really worth reading. One is very accurate history, and last time I did this study, I read a large passage from it, uh, but it takes too long. I'm not going to do that. So you can look up online. You might want to make a note. You just go to, just Google it. <laughs> And read, first, read the book of 1 Maccabees. It's readily available, and it will amaze you as you read it. It is hard for us to realize, maybe impossible for us to realize, the emotional impact of all that we're looking at here. As Christians, we know that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. But the Jews of that day, the Jews of that day, saw the temple as representing the presence of God himself. 
Therefore, they thought the temple was invulnerable, that there'd be no one could ever destroy the temple. And the emotional grief this brought was unspeakable and to this day has not been forgotten by the Jewish people, even to this day. There is a prophecy here that isn't spelled out but is obvious nonetheless. The Jews were captives in Babylon. The temple had been destroyed. There was no sanctuary, no temple. But according to this prophecy that Daniel is giving, there will be one in the future. And, but there wasn't when Daniel was there. But then in 516, under Zerubbabel, the sanctuary was rebuilt and was there in Jesus' day when Jesus was around. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, fulfilling a prophecy from Jesus himself who said it would be destroyed. He died long before that and went back to heaven. And there will be another temple, and it happened as Daniel predicted, and it will happen again. There will be another temple. So now verse 12. We've already looked at the verse, but let's look at it again just a moment. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people... And the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So this is a picture of God's discipline on the Jews. It was the Jewish people who rebelled, and now they were experiencing God's discipline. Antiochus ruled over them for three years. Truth was thrown to the ground, or in other words, they forgot God. In 1 Maccabees, two verses in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, the books of the law that they found, I've already read this, but they tore to pieces and burned to fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who heard, heard, had heard to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. Both Proverbs and Hebrews tells us that God disciplines those he loves. That includes us. If he's a, a father isn't much of a father who won't discipline his children. And then in verse 13, and now we'll explain it. Then I heard an angel, a holy one, speaking. And another angel, another holy one, said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. So this tells us, that angels are very interested in what is happening to God's people. But it also tells us that angels don't know the future or the timing of the end, as Jesus said. Only the Father knows. So what about the 2,300 evenings and mornings? What's that all about? Okay, here it is, verse 14. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be re consecrated. 2,300 evenings and mornings reminds us of the wording of the days of creation. In Genesis, in the days of creation, it says God created the heavens and the earth, and, and then it, it goes on to say uh, <clears throat> uh, he did this and this evening and morning the first day. He did this and this evening and morning of the second day. He did this and this evening and morning the next day. And in Genesis, evening and morning represent one day. So there are two possible ways to interpret this number of 2,300 evenings and mornings. It could mean 2,300 24-hour days, therefore six years and 111 days. But uh, that would not represent anything in history. 
And by the way, the Jewish calendar are 30-day months, every month's 30 days. It could also refer to half that time, three years and 55 days. The reason for the second, and I think more likely time span, is that there was both an evening and morning sacrifice. And the context of this verse is that the sacrifice has been suspended. There were two sacrifices each day, one in the evening and one in the morning. Therefore, 1,150 evenings, 1,150 morning sacrifices for three years and 55 days. Just over three years after the altar to Zeus had been set up in the temple, Judas Maccabeus cleansed and rededicated the temple on December, December 14th, 164 B.C., and verse 14 states that when the 2,300 evenings and mornings have elapsed, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And this happened, as predicted, December, or using their calendar, Chislev 25, 164 B.C., and it's what we call Hanukkah. So every Christmas we hear about Hanukkah, and this is what it is talking about. And to this day, even today, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication to commemorate this momentous event. Now, let's go on here a little bit faster. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli Canal calling, Gabriel, Tell this man the meaning of the vision. And as he came near the place where I was standing, Daniel says, I was terrified, and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand what the vision concerns the time of the end. Understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Verse 18, while he was speaking, Daniel writes, to me, Daniel, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground, and then he touched me and raised me to my feet. So this is the first time an angel's name is mentioned in Scripture. And there's only one other angel named Michael. Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, and also to Mary, informing her she was to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit and birth the Messiah. Gabriel calls Daniel, son of man, designating him as a human being, a mortal who comes from the earth. The phrase is used 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. Some have asked how the phrase, time of the end, could be used here since the vision has described Antiochus and not the Antichrist horn that we met last time. If we stick to the context, it should not be difficult to understand. The end here is referring to the end of the rebellion caused by Antiochus. This text is predicting a specific historical event fulfilled in the life and times of Antiochus, Epiphanes, and no one else. But it is not forcing the context to say that the horn of chapter 7 and chapter 8 are both pictures or types of each other's. After all, all dictators and despots have the same predictable character. Well, Daniel had fallen into a deep sleep. Daniel's deep sleep 
is the same word for the deep sleep of Jonah in the storm on the ship. You remember he was trying to get away from God's will, and he fell asleep in the ship into a deep sleep. It ended up in a whole country coming to the Lord. And it's the word for the deep sleep of Adam when God created Eve. So we have this other deep sleep. Adam was already alive, and now something even better was going to come along, a woman by the name of Eve. The angel roused Daniel from his deep sleep and helped him to his feet. And in verse 19, he said, I'm going to tell you, Daniel, what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Now, it's important to see that the wrath here is the wrath of God on Antiochus and those Jews who are unfaithful to God. And notice the word, this is more practical for us, appointed time. This isn't some random happening that surprised God. For me, the most comforting thing I have understood from Bible prophecy is that God has a detailed plan. Yes, for my life, but not just for my life, but for all of history. Nothing is random. God is the Lord of history. And remember, what we are reading was written before Antiochus, and all the other events happened hundreds of years before. I'm, I'm quite aware that some, if you're not, I, I, <laughs> I, I've taught through the, the book of Daniel several times, and many of you have read it times and read books about it, but some of you are in some ways lost. But one of the things that you must see here and must understand is that all of these events that Daniel mentions happened, uh, and, and he said they would happen hundred year, hundreds of years before, and we have really accurate history of all these events. So we know from Josephus, for instance, who's one of the great historians, Jewish historians, that all, exactly how these events happened. And then in verse 20, and we've already talked about this, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So this is a picture of world history from Nebuchadnezzar, the gold head of the statue, to the second coming. Uh, Bible scholars call this the times of the Gentiles. The Jewish nation is in place today, but certainly not what it will be in the future when all the events around Jesus' return start to take place. And then in verse 21, again, we looked at this verse already, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Verse 22, the four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represented four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. I mean, it just blows my mind that he, he's writing all this down hundreds of years before it happened. And it's totally accurate to what actually happened historically. And in verse 23, in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a, a master of intrigue, he was a merciless political genius, <laughs> will arise. Verse 24, and he'll become very strong but not by his own power. Well, by whose power then? Well, by Satan's power. 
Revelation 13, 2, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And then it says the dragon, that's the devil, gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Or 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul, chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So that's for us to really, now, that's prophecy for us today that's going to happen. It would be appropriate to say that since Satan is God's Satan, Antiochus and the future Antichrist come only by the permissive will of God, and because we know the character of God, what is meant for evil will be turned to good by God. And whatever Satan tries to do, is always reversed by the will of God and in God's perfect timing. And then in verse 24 still, he will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does, and he'll destroy those who are mighty, his enemies, the holy people, God's people. And in verse 25, the first part is untranslated, um, and uh, it reads, And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. Uh, in the New American Standard Bible, it reads, And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he'll magnify himself in his heart. This is a picture of someone really full of himself, arrogant, prideful, a person who has a really good self-image and believes in himself to the exclusion of anyone else's opinion, notably God's opinion. Antiochus, I've mentioned the coins that he had minted that were inscribed with God manifest on them, Theos, Epiphanes. He didn't believe he was actually God as he was devoted to the Greek gods, but he did believe he represented those gods on earth. And he had taken on the title Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious one, and the Jews called him Epinemes, meaning the madman. He was a very deceitful man. First Maccabees, again, last time I'll quote it. The king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force. Deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them, and they believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, destroying many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. A very deceitful, terrible man. And when they feel secure, verse 25 says, he will destroy many and take a stand against the prince of princes, meaning against God, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Antiochus really died. He went crazy. He died of grief because he was defeated, and he just simply went crazy. Predictably, when a prideful person has his or her life dreams dash, they fall apart. This will always be the case when someone's life is all about themselves. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And in verse 26, it reads, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you, Daniel, is true, but... Seal up the vision 
for it concerns the distant future. Now notice that the evenings and mornings are singled out. They represent the years of tribulation they would face under Antiochus. There were three years of tribulation predicted, and they happened as predicted. There'll be another time of persecution for the people of God that we'll talk about next week, three and a half years, as we'll see later in Daniel. Daniel was to seal up the vision, not keep it secret, as some translations say. God never keeps prophecy from his people. Daniel is being told to preserve the scripture so it will be an encouraging time for those in this future time 400 years later. I mean, this is incredible. If what we have studied is true, and it really was written by Daniel 400 years before it happened, if that's all true, even if I don't understand every little detail, then we can no longer see the Bible as just a book to study, but God's word to read and obey. There was a reason the Apostle John, who wrote the Revelation and the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16 especially, were written for a specific purpose. And here's the purpose. John 16, 33. I have written you these things so that in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And then the final verse, and we're done. I, Daniel was exhausted and lay ill for several days. And then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. You see, Daniel did not understand the detail we now know about, but he did understand the terrible persecution would be coming to God's people. We're not promised a life of ease and good health and prosperity. I wish we were. Great persecution is still to come. But next week, we'll study the 70-week prophecy and then be looking forward to the sound of the trumpet and our leaving the earth to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll be with him forever. And in verse 27, I want to bring out one thing to finish with. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for seven, several days. And then if we skip the sentence and go to the third sentence, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Daniel was basically sick and depressed because he could see where everything was going. And it was going to be terrible. He could see that. And I have to say that I look maybe at too much of the news occasionally and read too many things about it, but I get really sad that's the best word I can think of for it. I get really sad. I think of the crazy things that are happening, of the stupid decisions that are being made, not just in America, but all over the world. It's, it's, it's crazy what's happening, and it makes me really sad. And it makes me actually want to just lay down for several days and forget about everything. But in the middle verse, it says, Daniel says, then I got up and went about the king's business. That's how we should respond to all that is happening in our world, in our country today. When we rise every morning, we must be about the king's business, doing what God put us here to do. And so with the same basic sentence that I ended the sermon with on Sunday, here's the question for us. So what is the task that God has assigned to you? Let's pray. Father, 
you've given us a purpose in life. You've given us a Savior who died for us. You've made it so we can call you Father. You've told us through your Son that in this world we'll have trouble, but take heart because you've overcome the world. So that means that there's no reason for us to be uptight or worried about everything or uh, full of stress because we know that you're in charge and you've given us a task, you've given us gifts, you've given us the ability. We are the church, we are your people, and you have filled us with your Holy Spirit and given us your word. So, Father, it's obvious that you have a plan for the future. Next week, we're going to learn the most wonderful details of that plan. And we already are looking forward to Jesus coming again. Oh, Father, may he come soon. But in the meantime, please encourage us as we encourage one another in the power of the Holy Spirit to be about your business, to be fulfilling the task that you've given us a plan for our lives, for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.